The term psychedelic comes from the Greek psyche, meaning mind, and delos, meaning manifest. Simply, mind manifest. The implication here is that these substances can tap into the unused potential of the human mind. Englishman Humphrey Osmond termed the word psychedelic in the year 1956. He also conducted much science in the space. One of them was to cure alcoholics with a drug called LSD. That was in the late 1950s. He famously also worked with William Wilson, who was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, also known as AA. A hallucinogen, on the other hand, is a psychoactive agent that causes hallucinations. In other words, experiences in perceptions. These are often vivid, substantial, and in an external objective space. This is, ne- this is different from dreaming. The more technical term for hallucinogenics is tripping. Hallucinations can occur in smell, in vision, hearing, taste, the nervous system, your movement, your balance, the temperature, as well as perception of time itself. The common three classifications are psychedelics, disassociatives, distorts the perceptions of sight and sound, giving feeling to attachment, delirians, drugs that create a confused state and has disturbance in attention and cognition. The word hallucinogen originated around 1600 from the original Latin meaning to wonder the mind. The term narcotic originally referred medically to any psychoactive compound with numbing or paralyzing properties. In the US, it has since become associated with opioids, commonly used morphine and heroin, as well as derivatives of many of the compounds found within raw opium latex. Psychedelics have a long history of use in both religion and traditional medicine. Many, if not all, traditional tribes used such substances to get closer to the spirits, access new paradigms, and heal people. Certain substances, often found in nature, such as cannabis or tobacco, is a natural organic produce. Others, such as alcohol, was produced to supply nourishment and clean drinking water. In India, as long ago as the ancient Vedic periods, that's at least 2000 BCE, there are references to the use of cannabis for use in religious or spiritual context. It is my belief that practices of this nature were commonplace throughout history and helped the species to recover and grow. The point I'm making here is that the use of natural methods for humans to trip was the norm and not the exemption for all human existence. I want to spend some time on this podcast trying to figure out how society went from complete acceptance to somehow near-complete hatred for substances, minus alcohol and tobacco, and now cannabis in some countries. So, the convention 
on psychotropic substances of 1971 is a United Nations treaty designed to control psychoactive drugs such as amphetamine-type stimulants and psychedelics signed in Vienna on the 21st of February 1971. The single Convention on Narcotic Drugs of 1961 did not ban the newly discovered psychotropics. Since its scope was limited to drugs with cannabis, coca and opium-like effects. During the 1960s, such drugs became widely available and government authorities opposed this for numerous reasons, arguing that along with negative health effects, drug use led to lowered moral standards. The conventions, which contained import and export restrictions and other rules aimed at limiting drug use to scientific and medical purposes, came into force on the 16th of August 1976. As of 2013, 183 member states of the UN are parties to the treaty. Provisions to end the international trafficking of drugs covered by this convention are contained in the United Nations Convention Against Illicit Traffic in Narcotic Drugs and Psychotropic Substances. Whew. This treaty, signed in 1988, regulates precursor chemicals to drugs controlled by the single convention and the Convention on Psychotropic Substances. It also strengthens provisions against money laundering and other drug-related crimes. The war on drugs, however, is not about a set of UN conventions. It is a global, let us say, ideology-driven military campaign started by the United States government 50 years ago. We are in 2021 today, and this war, the war on drugs, by the US started in 1971. The UN conventions that I just mentioned kicked off in 1971. The aim of this war is to end the illicit drug trade in the domestic United States. The term was publicized by the mainstream media shortly after a press conference given on June 18, 1971 by President Richard Nixon of the US. The day after a publication of a special message from Nixon to Congress on drug abuse prevention and control, during which he declared drug abuse, and I quote, public enemy number one, end quote. Two years earlier, in 1969, Nixon had declared war on drugs. That would be directed towards eradication, exclusion, and incarceration. Let me set some added context. Drug prohibition laws had been regularly enacted all throughout the century, with the first one in 1914. In 1968, President Lyndon B. Johnson decided that the government needed to try to curtail the social unrest that blanketed the country at the time. He decided to focus his efforts on illegal drug use, an approach that was in line with expert opinion on the subject at the time. In the 1960s, it was believed that at least half of crime in the US was drug-related, and this number grew as high as 90% in the next decade. The Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970 is a US domestic law that, with subsequent modifications, 
requires the pharmaceutical industry to maintain physical security and strict record-keeping for certain types of drugs. The Controlled Substances Act, or the CSA, Title II of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970, is the legal foundation of the government's fight against the abuse of drugs and other substances. This law is a consolidation of numerous laws regulating the manufacture and distribution of narcotics, stimulants, depressants, hallucinogens, anabolic steroids, and chemicals in use in the illicit production of controlled substances. The Act also provides a mechanism for substances to be controlled, added to a schedule, decontrolled, removed from control, rescheduled, or transferred from one schedule to another. The U.S. Psychotropic Substances Act of 1978 amended the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970 and Control Substances Act to ensure compliance with the Convention on Psychotropic Substances, bringing us full circle back to the UN Convention on Psychotropic Substances of 1971. In addition, there were three other major socioeconomic events that were concerning to the U.S. government. 1. The unwinnable Vietnam War and its negative domestic impact. 2. The hippie movement with bands like the Beatles, Pink Floyd and the Doors who actively showcased drug use as cool. 3. The recent U.S. Civil Rights Act. A chap called John L. Richmond, who was counsel and assistant to the President for Domestic Affairs under Richard Nixon, said much later in 1994, and I quote, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. In 1973, the Drug Enforcement Administration was officially set up, thus beginning the militarization of the war on drugs, turning the ideology into an actual offensive war. The Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984 expanded penalties towards possession of cannabis, established a federal system of mandatory minimum sentences, and established procedures for civil asset forfeiture. From 1980 to 1984, the federal annual budget of the FBI's drug enforcement units went from 8 million to 95 million US dollars. The Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, the act substantially increased the number of drug offenses with mandatory minimum sentences. This act mandated a minimum sentence of five years without parole for possession of five grams of crack cocaine while it mandated the same possession of 500 grams of powdered cocaine. As the 1990s approached, the war on drugs took on a life of its own. The US began proactively intervening in other countries' domestic affairs, in particular if they were a producer or route for the drugs trade to the US. 
This was mostly intervention in South America, but it led to also extraterritorial actions in Southeast Asia and parts of Africa. The leading narrative in the US was that drugs were bad, especially illegal drugs were bad. This has some credibility. Who wants a city loaded with people who are out of their minds, running riot? Who wants a child or grandchild addicted to heroin or cannabis? No one. So the experts, the media, the corporations, the education system, and the entire machine of government by 2021 had transformed what was supposed to be an attack on black leadership and the hippies transformed into an entire global operation to root out substance abuse with laws to keep growing and funding the anti-drug war. Putting an amazing, glamorous fuel to this fire was Hollywood and Netflix with movies and shows about this anti-drug concept. The domestic impact to the US as a society was high, both in terms of money, resources, and lives lost and locked up in prisons. In the 1980s, while the number of arrests for all crimes had risen by 28%, the number of arrests for drug offences rose 126%. The result of increased demand was a development of privatization and the for-profit prison industry of the United States. The US Justice Department, reporting on the effects of state initiatives, had stated that from 1990 through to the year 2000, the increasing number of drug offences accounted for 27% of the total growth of among black inmates, 7% of the total growth among Hispanic inmates, and 15% of the growth among white inmates. In addition to prison or jail, the United States provides for the deportation of many non-citizens convicted of drug offenses as well. In 1994, the New England Journal of Medicine reported that this war on drugs had resulted in locking up about 1 million Americans each year in jail. Just chew on that for a moment. By 2008, 1.5 million Americans arrested each year were for drug offenses. Half a million would be locked up in jail. In addition, one in five black Americans would spend time behind bars due to draconian drug laws. Many of those arrested only held a small amount of something like cannabis on their person. However, the punitive measures meant they lost their driver's license, professional license, public aid, and lost public housing. Every president, George H.W. Bush, Clinton, George W. Bush, and Obama, passively saw the continuation of the regime. Obama, to his credit in 2010, signed the Fair Sentencing Act into law that dramatically reduced the 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between powder and crack cocaine, which disproportionately affected minorities. To me, though, that was just a token. It was not until President Donald Trump in December 2018 when the so-named First Step Act was signed. The First Step Act was a landmark bill in an, and it is an attempt to right the wrongs of earlier decades. Among other changes, reforms federal prisons and sentencing laws to reduce relapse jail terms decrease the federal inmate population and support public safety. Almost immediately, more than 3,000 federal prisoners, mostly black males, were released based on charges to the good time credits calculation formula under the First Step Act 
and more than 2,000 inmates benefited from sentence reductions from the retroactive application of the Fair Sentencing Act of 2010. 350 people were approved for elderly home confinement and more than 100 received compassionate release sentences reductions right when this act was passed, pretty immediately afterwards. Increasingly, many U.S. states have legalized the use of cannabis for both medicinal and recreational use. The U.S. state of Oregon has decriminalized even the use of other narcotics. That being said, as of April 2021, the U.S. government at the federal level considers the use of cannabis completely illegal, even though some states have it as legal. What about the U.S. war on drugs waged on other countries? Well, there was Operation Intercept. Nixon's Operation Intercept, announced in September 1969, targeted at reducing the amount of cannabis entering the United States from Mexico. The effort began with an intense inspection and crackdown that resulted in almost shutdown of the cross-border traffic between the United States and Mexico. Because the burden on border crossing was so, so controversial in the border states, the effort only lasted 20 days and was abandoned. Then there was Operation Just Cause. On December 20th, 1989, United States invaded Panama as part of this Operation Just Cause, which involved 25,000 U.S. troops. General Manuel Noriega, head of the government of Panama, had been giving military assistance to Contra groups in Nicaragua at the request of the U.S., which in exchange tolerated his drug trafficking activities, which they had known about since the 1960s. When the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration tried to indict Noriega in 1971, the CIA prevented them from doing so. The CIA, which was then directed by future Pre President George H.W. Bush, provided Noriega with hundreds of thousands of dollars per year as payment for his work in Latin America. Operation Just Cause purpose was to capture Noriega and overthrow his government. This they did. He was captured in 1990 and sentenced in a U.S. court. Then there was Plan Colombia. The United States government supplied hundreds of millions of dollars per year of military aid, training and equipment to Colombia to fight left-wing guerrillas such as the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, also known as FARC, F-A-R-C, which had been accused of being involved in drug trafficking. Private U.S. corporations have signed contracts to carry out anti-drug activities as part of Plan Colombia. DynCorp, the largest private company involved, was among those contracted by the U.S. State Department, while others signed contracts with the U.S. Defense Department. Between 1999 and 2002, the U.S. gave Colombia $2.4 billion U.S. dollars in aid, 81% of which was for military purposes, placing Colombia just below Israel and Egypt, among the largest recipients of U.S. military assistance. Then there was the Meridia Initiative. The Meridia Initiative is a 2008 security cooperation between the U.S. government and the government of Mexico and other countries of Central America. Its stated aim is combating the threats of drug trafficking and transnational crime. The initiative appropriate, appropriated $1.4 billion in a three-year commitment between 2008 and 2010 
to the Mexican government for military and law enforcement training and equipment, as well as technical advice and training to strengthen the national justice systems. The initiative targeted many very important government officials, but it failed to address the thousands of Central Americans who had to flee their countries due to the danger they faced every day because of the war on drugs itself. There is still not any type of plan that addresses these people's concerns. As of today, 2021, thousands of economic refugees have been entering the US as part of a plan by President Biden to let people into the country to reverse his predecessor's illegal migration halt. There was something the United States also participated in called the Aerial Herbicide Application. This is where the US regularly sponsors the spraying of large amounts of herbicides over the jungles of Central and South America as part of its drug eradication programs. Environmental consequences resulting from aerial fumigation have been criticized as detrimental to some of the world's most fragile ecosystems. These aerial practices cause health problems in local populations as well. Then there are the US operations in Honduras. In 2012, the U.S. sent DEA agents to Honduras to assist security forces in counter-narcotics operations. Honduras has been a major stop for drug traffickers who use small planes and landing strips hidden throughout the country to transport drugs. The U.S. government made agreements with several Latin American countries to share intelligence and resources to counter the drugs trade. President Trump revealed that the U.S. government gave millions to some Central American countries, including Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala, with little to show in return. The flow of illegal socioeconomic migrants would travel through Mexico and enter the U.S. from those three countries. Trump, through the use of blunt language and direct cut-off from their greed aid, forced these countries to stem the tide of economic migrants, having the dual net-net benefit of reduced people trafficking and reduced the flow of illegal drugs and money into the US and Mexico. This is just the US operations in the Americas, and I have only touched the surface of the kinds of activities the US government has been involved in to control the flow of drugs. Let me stop for a moment and give some context on what other countries have done to control some of these substances in their own countries. Starting with Mexico. The government has been embroiled in a deadly war domestically with drug cartels whose job it is to move people from Central America to the US, in addition to supplying illegal substances to markets in the US. The loss of life in Mexico of police, military and civilians is incalculable, in the hundreds of thousands at this point in 2021. That said, the Mexican drug war is the Mexican theater of the overall war on drugs led by the US. The Philippine drug war is an independent domestic war with the aim of neutralization of illegal drugs personalities nationwide under President Duterte, who assumed office in 2016. In the 1990s, the Philippines became a temporary theater of the US-led war on drugs. At one point, the Drug Enforcement Administration of the United States even conducted their own operations in the country. Duterte would win the 2016 Filipino presidential election, promising to kill tens of thousands of criminals with a platform urging people to kill drug addicts. Duterte is accused of extrajudicial killings of hundreds of street children 
petty criminals and drug users carried out by death squads, a vigilante group which he was allegedly involved with. Estimates of the death toll vary. Officially, 5,000 or so drug personalities have been killed as of January 2019, though other reports suggest it could be as high as 12,000 people. The victims, so far as we know, included 54 children in the first year alone. The president urged citizens to kill suspected criminals and drug addicts. He said he would order police to adopt a shoot-to-kill policy and would offer them a bounty for dead suspects. In a speech to military leadership on July the 1st, the president told communist rebels to use your kangaroo courts to kill them to speed up the solution to our problem, end quote. Indeed, as I speak in 2021 now, the government has been involved in some firefights with cartels in the country. Let's move on to Singapore. The Misuse of Drug Acts is a drug control law classifying substances into three categories in Singapore. Classes A, B, and C. The possession, consumption, manufacturing, import, export, or trafficking of these and other controlled drugs in any amount are illegal. Persons caught with less than the mandatory death penalty amounts of these controlled substances face penalties ranging from caning, i.e. up to 24 strokes of caning, to life in prison. Pursuant to a law change in 2009, Cannabis and marijuana mixtures are treated the same under Singapore law and presumed intent is trafficking. In Indonesia, they also have tough drug laws that include lengthy stays in prison with a strong death penalty. It is hard to police the endless shorelines and islands of the country, but the zero-tolerance approach in the domestic market is something that foreign nationals on holiday often fall foul of. Thailand also has very strict laws. Death and life in prison are among the harsh measures taken. In Thai law, narcotics have been described as any chemicals that is consumed having psychological or mental effects. After all, Thailand is smack in the middle of what is known as the golden triangle of drug production. Meaning, we should look at our next topic, the illegal drugs trade. But before we do, let's look at what the legal drug trade actually is. The legal drug trade is commerce under the control and taxation of world governments, regardless of the relative perceived danger of the goods that are the object of the legislation. Alcoholic beverages containing psychoactive alcohol are produced legally throughout the world. In fact, they're branded. Their production supports a commercial alcohol industry. Consumption of alcohol is subject to regulation in most countries, namely by means of age restrictions. Then there is tobacco, a recreational drug containing nicotine that is produced legally in countries such as Cuba, China, and the US. This also supports a tobacco industry and the production of a variety of tobacco products, which, like alcoholic beverages, are subject to age restrictions in most countries. Then there's caffeine, another stimulant drug. It is extracted from plants, including the coffee plant and the tea bush. It is the most widely consumed psychoactive substance in the world, remaining unregulated and generally recognized as safe. Cannabis and opioids occupy the social position 
of alcohol and tobacco in some non-Western countries, where alcohol and its users could be treated in the way resembling the harassment and prosecution of illegal drug users in Western countries. Kind of flipped. If you want to ask anyone why fight to keep these drugs illegal and out of the domestic population, ask China. In the early 19th century, an illegal drugs trade in China emerged. As, as a result, by 1838, the number of Chinese opium addicts had, had grown to between 4 and 12 million people. The Chinese imperial government responded by enforcing a ban on the import of opium, leading to the First Opium War, 1839-1842, between the United Kingdom and the Chinese imperial government. The loss in the war and subsequent other opium wars resulted in a 150-year dark era for China, including not just the opium, but the social and political weakness leading to allowing it to become weak enough to then allow British, then Russian meddling, then Japanese invasion and occupation, then the overthrow of the emperor, civil war, cultural revolution, and not emerging from this chaos until the 1980s. So if we use China as our benchmark, it's not surprising that any government would try to prevent its population from getting access to addictive narcotics. Today, the main markets are the US, Canada, and the European Union. That's the market. The main sources of production are South America, West Africa, the Golden Crescent, i.e. Afghanistan, and the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia. These are the producers. The main routes include any country that can act as a transit to the market. In other words, this is the best working capitalist system on the planet. People at most stages of this cycle have a lot to gain and a lot to lose. Once you put the US actions into context of other countries and historical experiences, then the reaction of the US government seems measured and reasonable. However, when you realize that the policies of this war, and it is an actual war, are anything but effective, and were even corrupt CIA, DEA, and US State Department officials are involved in illicit trade themselves, then you know something isn't working. When you have millions of dollars spent, millions of citizens in jail, mass economic migration because of your own foreign adventures, then maybe something else needs to be done. There is little evidence that President Biden intends to build on anything left over by President Trump. The US government must secure its southern border, end people smuggling, stop the flow of guns into Mexico from the US, legalize less harmful drugs, build on the First Step Act, and the endless war on drugs in other people's countries needs to stop. Other countries have also taken heavy-handed measures, yes. However, it is only the US government who is proactively involved in a political, diplomatic, and military war outside its own borders and is creating a domino effect back in on itself. Ill-thought-out plans such as those adopted by administration officials over 50 years ago need to be reversed. The domestic impact as well as the foreign impact, especially in Central America, is devastating. 
If there is anything the last 50 years has taught us is that throwing laws, money and guns at a human activity as old as human civilization itself isn't going to work, not for the US or Singapore or anyone. Not that this activity needs to be controlled, but maybe it needs to be better policed, taxed and administered. After all, alcohol is widely available in the US. It has multiple problems associated with it. Lots of people hooked on it, addicted. But at least the solution isn't throwing people into jail or declaring war on foreign producers of beer. Then again, if millions of young people are hooked on opium, then that has problems of its own. It is a tricky situation, but the current US offensive War on drugs is 100% hindering more than helping. So the war on drugs is military adventurism at its worst, in spirals. And it keeps adding in on itself and building in on itself. It is an unwinnable war and it is still being fought by the US government 50 years after it started. You have been listening to an alternative history podcast. Please like, subscribe and rate this podcast on your podcast app of choice. Thank you for listening.